All right, you see there, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1, picking up in verse 12 this morning with our text as we walk through the uh, first epistle of Paul to Timothy. For the past couple of months, we've considered one of any number of topics within the church which are controversial, one of any number of topics that carry with them serious spiritual weight and consequences, things which may seem small and which we hope will, will simply sort themselves out, uh, but yet if, if not addressed, if not considered, if not understood, could lead to deeper spiritual problems, can bring about spiritual consequences. And this reminds us of that which we emphasized heavily in that series that we just came out of on the law, that we are saved unto a purpose. If you are a born-again believer, having put your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God left you here for a reason, right? The reason why, there's a reason why God did not just take you home the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He left you here. And He left you here for a reason. That There's work to be done. In our text today, we're going to see Paul call this work a warfare. Because his context is directly uh, uh, aimed toward error in the church. There's not just work to be done as it relates to winning the loss. There's work to be done as it relates to keeping the church pure. There's work to be done as it relates to keeping the church safe, preserving it for the next generation. And this is what we speak of today. Remember our context, the context within which we find 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we begin in verse 12. Paul has spoken of a number of things which are contrary to sound doctrine. Fables, endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying. And then he, as he paints these things, he's painting them with a very, very broad brush. And then he kind of gets specific for a moment. He talks about those things which don't engender love, which don't engender edification, the building up one of another in faith and truth. And then he zooms in on a particular group of men who sought to teach concerning the law, but did not truly understand, as Paul says, as Paul says the things which they were teaching or what their teaching affirmed as it related to sound doctrine. He emphasized that the law is made for the unrighteous, not for the righteous, as we considered that last week, that it is intended to draw men unto his need for Christ, according to the gospel, which Paul says in verse 11, we'll consider in a few moments, was committed to his trust. And it is at this point that Paul's considerations turn personal where he turns his attention to his own journey unto salvation and the impact that this journey had upon his own outlook in life. And that's where we pick up today in verse 12. The Bible says, if you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This statement is directly related to Paul mentioning that the gospel of the blessed God was committed to his trust. Uh, we considered this ourselves way back at the beginning of our law series in Acts 
chapter 15, that the apostles very quickly identified when Paul and Barnabas were standing before them, they quickly identified that in the same manner that the gospel had been committed unto the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, unto the Jewish believers, so too the gospel had been committed to Paul and Barnabas unto the Gentile world. And this was, of all things to Paul, deeply humbling. To this end, as he considered what he calls the gospel that was committed to his trust, he's immediately drawn into this idea of thanksgiving. He was thankful that God had enabled him for ministry because God had counted Paul faithful. See, God is not nearly as interested in your talents and your capabilities as he is interested in your faithfulness. God is able to overcome deficiencies as it relates to talent. God is able to overcome deficiencies as it relates to capability. But what God needs is your heart. God needs someone submitted. God needs faithful people. God has shown throughout every age that he is ultimately sovereign. And yet he exercises his own discretion to limit himself with respect to man's free will, only overriding and thwarting the will of man when it seeks to operate in explicit contradiction to his plans or to his promises. To this end, God is not regularly in the business of overriding our choices. He is not regularly in the business of of forcibly submitting our will. God wants us to to be faithful. God wants us to be submitted, and to those that are, he can use them. Now, now Paul was a clever guy. Paul was a very talented man. He was zealous. He was intelligent. He was knowledgeable, and there's no doubt that God uses zealous, intelligent, and knowledgeable men, but that it was not the primary thing that God needed in Paul for Paul to be usable. What God needed in Paul was faithfulness. As it relates to Paul and his intelligence and his cleverness, particularly in the early church, uh, he is somewhat of an exception that proves the rule as it relates to his capabilities. And what I mean by that is that when you think about the 12 apostles, the, 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 the 12 that, the, the 11 that had followed Jesus, and then, of course, Judas having died, and then uh, the twelfth being appointed there in the book of Acts, when we think about those 12 who were commissioned by God to Israel, They were men who were not of great education or ability. We speak of the fact that they were fishermen. Matthew, of course, was a publican. Of others, we know very little. But we know full well that they were not men of financial strength. We know full well that they were not men of intellectual greatness or of physical greatness. In Acts chapter 4, we find the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin. And they're answering for the fact that they were teaching the people that Jesus had risen from the dead. They're answering for the fact that they were teaching people doctrine that was not according to the Jewish belief system. And, And so the apostles are standing before the high priest, and they're standing before the Sanhedrin. They're before Annas, they're before Caiaphas, they're before two men named John and Alexander, among others. And we pick up there, just to show you what I'm talking about, in Acts chapter 4, 
verse 7, where the Bible says this, And when they had set them in the midst, that would be the apostles, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So as they questioned the apostles in regard to their doctrine, in regard to the things that were happening, Peter speaks up and he responds with great boldness, with great clarity of speech. He uses the Old Testament concept of that stone of stumbling and he links it to Jesus Christ, bringing in doctrine, weaving it together in a way that was quite articulate and, and in, in a manner of speaking from a theological perspective, quite impressive. Now, you know, Peter's saying this in Acts chapter 4, but we don't have Paul's writings yet, right? Paul articulates this really well in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We don't have that yet, right? Paul's not saved yet. This is Peter here. And Peter is, is weaving Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment together here as he's speaking before these men, many of whom probably have the entire Torah memorized. I mean, these are really, really knowledgeable guys. This is the high priest in Israel. These people know their stuff as it relates to the Old Testament. And as Peter weaves the Old Testament into the, the, the fulfillments in Jesus Christ, they're very startled by this. And we read this in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So the Sanhedrin saw a great contradiction as it related to Peter and as it related to John in that they were bold in their understanding of the scriptures and they were very skilled with the scriptures, but that they were also unlearned and ignorant men. These men had spent most of their life on boats. They were not men who had been pouring over uh, uh, learning and, and philosophy and theology. They, they were men who were generally speaking unlearned and ignorant. See, but that's okay because they were willing. God could make up the difference in their knowledge. God could help them weave together the things that they knew about Old Testament scriptures with him. And of course, Jesus spent time teaching them in those um, uh, days between his resurrection and his ascension. But what Jesus needed was faithfulness. Jesus, in fact, promised on several occasions that the Spirit of God would help them in their ministry. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promised them. He said, but the Comforter, that would be the Holy Spirit. That's why our King James translators uh, capitalized that word Comforter there. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said of you. Jesus would say a similar thing in John 16, verse 13. Howbeit when the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Once more, specifically to his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this in verses 18 through 20. He said, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them 
and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak, for it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would come upon them, would guide them into truth, would bring Christ's teaching to remembrance, would highlight the significance of those teachings, and would give them the words to say when they needed to say it at the right time speaking through them these things. See, see, it didn't matter that they were unlearned and ignorant men. It didn't matter that they weren't men of influence or men of skill or men of honor or men of wealth because serving God is not about capabilities. It's about a willing and a faithful heart. God can take anything and make it capable, but what God needs is your heart. Now, Paul was gifted with divine enablement in ministry, not because of his intelligence and capability per se, but because he was counted faithful to be made a servant of the living God. Now, it, God used his intelligence, right, greatly. Paul's writings, the clarity of them, the order of them, the, 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 the way that he writes, the, the way that, that he logically lays down his arguments is just fantastic and so helpful to the church of God. But I want to go in just one more direction before we move off of this. I mentioned before that Paul was somewhat an exception to the rule in that he was an intellectual and influential man before his salvation. He was uniquely gifted by God in a way perhaps greater, at least to greater effect, than maybe any other person in history as it relates not just to his writings but to his ministry. But with such success and such enablement comes the temptation of pride. A temptation which God himself helped Paul to temper. And this is something interesting about Paul. That Paul was a very intelligent man and God had blessed him with, with not just this capability, but God had blessed him with a great amount of success. To this end, God went out of his way to keep Paul humble, didn't he? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about this very reality, about the, the, the necessity that, that was in him to stay humble and about how God himself went about keeping Paul humble. He said in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 12, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul tells us in these verses that lest he fool himself at any time into believing that the divine enablement that God had given to him and the success that that enablement brought about had anything to do with him. God had given him a thorn in the flesh. What Paul describes as the messenger of Satan to buffet me. And Paul asked God to remove it. Three times Paul had asked God to remove it. We don't know what this was. Many people contemplate that perhaps it was something to do with his eyes. 
Uh, we see from various other passages um, some hints that maybe he could not see very well, um, perhaps a side effect of having had rocks thrown at him a lot of times. Um, but one way or another, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, God specifically says to Paul, no, I'm not going to take it away. Because God wanted Paul always to remember that God's grace is sufficient for him. When a man has a, a lot of natural talent, a lot of natural ability, there's a temptation even in ministry to fall back on that ability. There's a temptation even in ministry to, to, to kind of get on, on the default. That once you kind of get things figured out and you're comfortable and everything's rolling just fine, you just kind of coast and, and you don't really need the Spirit of God as much anymore because you've got the system in place and everything's good. And, and then you can just kind of get by on your own strength, on your own ability. And Paul says, I don't want that. God said, I don't want that for you, Paul. God says, no, you need to continually remember that my strength is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. To this end, Paul says, I'll glory in my infirmities. I'll glory in my weaknesses. I'll glory in my necessities. That every time I'm in need, that every time I'm persecuted, that every time this, this thorn in the flesh rears its head and reminds me of, of the limitations that it places upon me, it will be a glory to me because it reminds me that I am where God wants me, that I am doing what God would have me to do and that he, if he wanted to take it away, he could, right? If God wanted to take this thorn in the flesh away, he could have, but he chose not to, which means it's best. Can you trust that? Maybe you have your own thorn in the flesh. Maybe you have your own struggles and you've communed with the Lord about it. And I'm not talking about sin, you know, that you're choosing to, to continue in, but we're talking about a, a, a struggle that is outside of your decision-making process. And you say, God, why am I having to go through this? And maybe it's because, as Paul says here, when I am weak, then am I strong. Because the strongest we can possibly be is when God is the one that's doing it through us. The strongest we can possibly be is when God is the one living through us. And so if God can be magnified more through my weakness, then let me be weak. If God can be magnified more through my, my necessity, then let me have necessity. It takes real faith to say that, doesn't it? it? Takes real faith to be in that spot. See, Paul was chosen not because he was strong, but because he was faithful. In our weakness, God's strength is magnified, and this is what God wants. He will always use those who will increase Him and decrease themselves. He will always use those who are humble, that He may be exalted. So Paul offers here thanksgiving to God, and this thanksgiving is rooted in the change that God works in him. He says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. We continue then in verse 13. 
uh, of 1 Timothy 1. He says, Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul highlights the reasons why God counting him faithful, why God putting him into the ministry was so astounding to him, was so humbling to him. He describes his spiritual state prior to salvation. Now we know from Philippians chapter 3 that he was what he described before his salvation as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a man who uh, had excelled in his craft, right? He was a Pharisee. He was a, a, a student of the law. And he says that he did so above those his equals, that he was, he was top in his class. Can we just put it that way? As touching the righteousness that pertained to the law, Paul said, he was blameless. And yet Paul recognizes here that his state before Christ was one of blasphemy, of persecution, of injury. He was a blasphemer of the true and living God by rejecting Messiah. He was a persecutor of the true believers. Uh, We know that he had consented to the death of Stephen uh, among many other believers. As a matter of fact, while he was on the road to Damascus and he had his conversion experience, he was going there to root out more Christians to see them destroyed. He was injurious. The idea there being full of spite, insulter, deeply hurtful to the Christian faith. But, Paul says... He obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. He recounts the reality that these things were the definition of his life, but not in Christ. And we talked about this last week as we talked about the righteous man and the unrighteous man. That the unrighteous man, as we look at those lists of sins, he is defined by those sins. The righteous man, though he might sin, though he will sin, is defined by the righteousness that is in Christ. Paul says he did those things. They were what defined him prior to Christ, but he obtained mercy and cleansing at the moment of salvation. He had done those things in unbelief. And we see this principle in several biblical contexts, that it appears that at the moment of salvation, there is a a complete cleanse of sorts that takes place, a spiritual reset, spiritually speaking, a wiping of the slate clean as it relates to our past thoughts and actions. So that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The moment a person accepts Christ as his Savior, he's made a child of God, a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Your past with its sin, its, its shame is spiritually irrelevant to your future. Now, naturally, this does not mean that God removes all the consequences of our sin, right? The temporal consequences of our past life. If you spent years frying your brains with drugs before coming to Christ, being born again is not going to give you a new brain, right? If you spent years racking up debt before coming to Christ and living in a, in a, a, a materially uh, irresponsible way, in a financially irresponsible way, coming to Christ is not going to satisfy your creditors or fill your bank account. But as it relates to the spiritual, as it relates to your capacity to function before the Lord, as it relates to fellowship among the brethren, as it relates to who you are in Christ, as it relates to the wrongs you have committed, the people who have been harmed, Paul testifies that though he was a blasphemer, by his own admission in verse 15, we'll see he calls himself the chief of sinners. 
Yet his life pre-Christ did not affect God's willingness or ability to call him and to use him because he did it in unbelief and in ignorance. So too it is with us today. We'll come back to that point toward the end. He emphasizes thus in verses 14 and 15, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul presents a truth here, which he calls worthy of all acceptation, worthy of full acceptance. Every person under the sound of my voice needs to listen to this. That's what Paul is saying. This is worthy of all acceptance. This is worthy of our consideration. And a specific subset of persons really need to understand what the scriptures are saying here. There are some people who, especially among those who are saved perhaps a little bit later in life, whose pre-Christ lives were deeply stained by sin and by regret, and whose post-Christ lives still perhaps bear the scars, whether in, in your heart or, or, or maybe just in the lives of others who you had affected before being saved, still bears the scars of those years of sin. And now you've been saved, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have received that mercy, and yet there is still those scars, those memories, uh, the realities of the life that you once lived. You need to know, and you need to remember full well, it's worthy of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, he said, but to bring sinners to repentance, there are, there are those who, though they have been saved and they acknowledge their salvation, they don't doubt it, they're still operating under some measure of shame or condemnation for the things they did prior to salvation. There's a subset of the Christian community, perhaps describe someone in here today, who lives in a manner of speaking ashamed of your own salvation. Yes, it's true that, that you're unworthy to be saved. We are all unworthy. We're all unworthy to be saved. And yet you feel such an unworthiness that, if I can put it this way, you are almost ashamed of being saved. Not that you're ashamed of Christ. Don't get me wrong here. I'm trying to be, I want to be clear here. Not that you're ashamed of Christ. Not that you have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you're ashamed of yourself. You look back on yourself before Christ and you're so, so ashamed of what you see that it invades your present. And you can't find the joy and the peace that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. You're not finding it because you live haunted by the specter of your pre-Christ life. How it affected you. Maybe how it affected the ones you love. And you almost feel as though if you release that, if you give over the shame of your past life, that somehow uh, you would be, that that, that, that would be, that, that would be a bad thing. That that guilt is almost like penance for you for the years that you spent in ignorance and in unbelief. And that's a lie. That is not how God has called you to live. Paul wants us to understand something. That those circumstances, those actions, those shameful deeds, those devastating choices, that is exactly why Christ came. That is exactly who Jesus came to die for. You aren't some exception to the rule because you had a really bad life before you were saved. You weren't an exception to the rule. 
an especially bad fellow who God begrudgingly let in just because Jesus kind of tied his hands behind his back and said, you got to let this guy in too. That's not God, right? That is not how this works. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that, that is whom Christ came to die for. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The worst among us, as judged by man's flaws and a terribly inconsistent understanding of morality that we have, but as judged by those flaws, by those immoral actions, that they're the very reason why Jesus came. And let's be clear here. Even Paul calling himself the chief of sinners is a way to relate himself to man's perspective of morality. Because James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us if any man keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10, right? So as it relates to the law of God, as it relates to the holiness of God, as it relates to God himself, we are all guilty. That's that level playing field that we talked about last week. The playing field is leveled. We, are all, we have all fallen short so that God might have mercy on us all. And thank God for that. Thank God that by His exceeding and abundant grace, by means of the faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, where sin abounds, Romans 5 says, grace much more abounds. If you are holding yourself under the contempt of your pre-Christian days, of the days before you found Christ, whether it's because you feel so guilty and you feel as though by releasing those things that means you don't care about them, or as some misguided idea of penance, of trying to, 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 to show just how appreciative you are of the grace of God, what you need to know is that by holding yourself under the guilt of things by, of which Jesus Christ has already released you from, you're, you're not honoring Christ's sacrifice. You're actually reducing it. You're trying to pay double for that which Jesus Christ already paid in full. It's misguided. The best thing you can do, the best way that you can show appreciation to Christ for that which He did on the cross is to go and sin no more. Is to live in the power of a changed life and to live in the fullness of joy that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. Verse 16. Paul says, How be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on them to life everlasting. Paul says that it was for this cause that he obtained such mercy and he received such a ministry. Paul does not say that he received the ministry of the Gentiles that he did because he was a really smart guy, because he knew the Greek philosophers and their arguments, because he understood the relationship of the law to grace. That's not what he said. He says that he was made a template because he was the chief of sinners. Effectively, Paul saying here, look, if God can save me, he can save anyone. The long-suffering which Jesus showed to Paul, who hunted and killed the church of Christ, who was as hostile to the truths of Christ as anyone could be, that long-suffering is intended to be an example to every generation that God's mercy is open and available to all. If Paul can be saved, if Paul can not just be saved, but after having been a, a consenting murderer of Christians, if Paul could be used to, to be a part of the foundation of the church throughout the known world, then God can use anyone. 
Because the moment you're placed into Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Thus, the thing holding us back from effectiveness, from being used by God, is not our unrighteous past. It's not that, well, I must have just too many battle scars from my pre-Christ days to be used. Not at all. If there's anything holding us back, it's not our abilities or lack thereof. It's our yieldedness. See, because Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, not for that he counted me intelligent, not for that he counted me capable, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Let us never forget it. And this inspires Paul unto what it ought to inspire us unto as well, which is praise. He goes into an ode here of sorts, verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ours is the King eternal. Ours is the immortal, invisible, God only wise. He is the eternal. He has no beginning and end. He is immortal, not as men who are haunted by the specter of our own limitations, of our own mortality. He is invisible, not beholden to our senses or limited by the things which accompany our senses. And He is the only wise God. We understand full well that His ways are higher than our ways, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and that, as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians, that God uses the foolishness of preaching to win the world. Upon this, Paul then lays a commission unto Timothy in verse 18. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Remember that this chapter has been one of warring against false teaching, specifically as it relates to the law. That is our context here. Paul got into his own testimony to remind Timothy of, of the battle that's being fought, that men can be saved, all of these things, but we are talking about false doctrine here. Paul says it, it thus in this context or in this vein, knowing the gospel committed to Paul, knowing the grace of God which has come to save sinners, knowing that the end of the commandment is love, as he said early in the chapter, knowing that false doctrines do and will abound. According to the prophecies which went before him, that's Timothy, the charge is war a good warfare. Boldly contend for the faith. Don't waver in your determinations unto doctrinal purity. Don't be afraid to stand against false teaching. Draw the hearts of the saints unto sound doctrine. Stand at all costs. Now, I want to take a moment and consider what it means that this charge was given according to the prophecies which went before on thee as it relates to Timothy. The prophecies laid upon Timothy. These prophecies, Paul says, were in alignment with a charge that Paul is giving today. And so whatever these prophecies were, we perhaps would understand them to be directly related to sound doctrine and false doctrine because Paul says, war good warfare, and he says, do so according to the prophecies which went before on thee. These prophecies were given to Timothy at the time of his ordination. We read about this uh, a few chapters later. Of course, we won't get there for a little while, but we read about it in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Paul says, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy 
with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Here Paul is called or Paul calls Timothy to not neglect the gift in him given by prophecy when the elders the presbytery laid their hands on him. This is speaking of his ordination unto ministry. We'll not explain this verse in particular today because we'll get there in just a few months, but we would understand it very likely that this is the prophesying which Paul speaks of in chapter 1, verse 18. And to understand these verses, we likewise need to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of prophecy. Prophecy is often considered within the context of prediction, right? Of telling the future. But that is not always the case. The ministry of the prophets was twofold. The ministry of the prophets was a foretelling ministry that they would tell various elements about the future, but that was actually not even the primary function of the prophets, Old Testament or New. The primary function of the prophet was not to foretell the future as much as it was to foretell the word of God. The prophets spent far more time telling God's people what God wanted for them today, thus saith the Lord than they did telling anybody what was going to happen in the future. As a matter of fact, the ministry of signs and wonders and of prophecy foretelling the future, all of these ministries within the the context of the prophet were intended to direct people's hearts toward the message. That was their point. The prophet would do signs and wonders to validate the message that he said was true. The prophet would tell the future to validate when it came to pass that what the prophet had said was true. It was to be a test of their ministry. To that end, the focal point of the prophet's ministry was the preaching of the word of God, the foretelling of that which the Lord had for them. The prophets came with the word of the Lord for those in that day, and then they used signs, miracles, and foretelling of future events to validate the reality that what they were saying was actually from God. And it was for this reason that the nation was called to kill any man who would speak in the name of the Lord, and then if the thing that they said did not come to pass, they were, just, they were to kill him. Why? Because he spoke in the name of the Lord, but he did not speak for the Lord. And so the prophetic foretelling ministry was intended to validate that when they say, thus saith the Lord, do this, do that, the Lord wants you to do this, that it's true. It was their way of sifting truth and error. But when his foretelling did come to pass, it proved that the prophet's message was true and should immediately be regarded. To this end, we need not be hasty to conclude that Timothy was receiving some sort of promise at his ordination of future ministry or power that the prophecy that was given unto him and the gift that was given to him by prophecy was necessarily some sort of foretelling revelation of his ministry, but rather more likely that the elders laid their hands upon Timothy, as is common among ordinations, commending him to the Lord, charging him unto ministry, instructing him in the way, prophesying to him of the nature of life and ministry. And if this is indeed the idea that Paul is considering here, then most likely what had happened is when they, when the presbytery took their hands and laid them on Timothy, ordaining him unto the ministry and calling him unto that, that, that gift of the pastor teacher, there were probably 
many a man there who, as they were charging Timothy on that day, told him, false doctrines abound. Your job is to stand for the truth, to walk in sound doctrine, and to lead others unto the same. And so if that is what happened, then it would make perfect sense that Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, according to those prophecies, right? According to those men and what they told you, even on the day of your ordination, so do. War good warfare. Contend for sound doctrine. Fight for the purity of the faith. And let's be explicit about this. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Paul is not charging Timothy to war against people, right? He's calling Timothy to war against spiritual error, against ideas. Yes, those ideas are espoused by people against whom Paul and Timothy would contend. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But our battle is truth versus error. It is not people versus people. And this is compelled by spiritual forces, not material forces. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We wrestle against spiritual foes. Our battle is fought on a spiritual plane. That's why prayer is so important. We'll talk about that next week in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Prayer is so important because we wrestle against a spiritual foe. We fight a spiritual battle. The flesh and blood that stands against sound doctrine, the people and the institutions that are standing against sound doctrine today, they are to be confronted. They are to be challenged. They are to be refuted. But the battle is over the souls of men, not the favor of men. The battle is over truth versus error, not man versus man, which means the weapons of our battle are not physical. They are spiritual. We don't take arms against the purveyors of false doctrine. If some church in town sends out a flyer with an egregious false doctrine, we're not going to storm their doors and burn their church to the ground, right? That's not how we fight this warfare. We take up the banner of truth and we fight the battle of ideas knowing that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, these bodies, their flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Right? We're not taking up swords and fighting false doctrine here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Our weapons are not mighty on this earth, but mighty through God, spiritual weapons, pulling down spiritual strongholds, strongholds of error and of false doctrine, casting down those errors, casting down those things which exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, bringing those thoughts, bringing those ideas, bringing those imaginations into captivity and subjecting them to the obedience of Christ, readying ourselves always to speak against disobedience, to speak against sound doctrine. This is how we war the warfare of Christ. We come from a position of obedience and truth, and that is where our strength lies. Paul then says in verse 19, holding faith, keeping a hold of it, and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. 
of whom is Hymenaeus, uh, Hymenaeus, excuse me, and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we cling to this faith. We cling to this truth. We cling to a good conscience. We talked about that in our last two weeks of our law series, loving our neighbor as ourself. We, we live by faith and we live by a good conscience. This is the end of the commandment that Paul spoke of in verse 5. Charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Because those who swerve from this, those who have put away faith and a good conscience have made shipwreck. Their faith has been wrecked on the shoals of false doctrine, whether that be uh, unsound doctrine itself or whether that be those endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying in love or, or those, those uh, endless, th- those, those fables, those myths, those things which have no bearing in our Christian life and which get us distracted and caught up on the things that are minor or unnecessary. Those who swerve have been made shipwreck. Their usefulness for the Lord has been lost to error. And Paul notes two men specifically, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he says he has delivered unto Satan. There was apparently a doctrinal contention between Paul and these men. We don't know a whole lot about them. We do gain some possible insight into them from 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we read this. And their word will eat as doth a canker, Paul warning about false teachers here, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So here again we see Hymenaeus with another man named Philetus. These men preached a false doctrine stating that the resurrection, that would be the resurrection at the second coming of Christ, had already taken place. This could have been in any number of heresies that were floating around at the time. There were those that spiritualized the resurrection. As a matter of fact, there's still several um, uh, groups that do this today, uh, well-known and, and somewhat influential groups as it relates to Christian circles coming from the circles of, of R.C. Sproul and such, um, who would, would still believe this sort of an idea uh, to one degree or another that that. Um, the resurrection, as it were, is spiritual. There's not going to be a bodily resurrection. There's only a spiritual resurrection that it takes place at, at salvation, that we are spiritually resurrected, right? Kind of a Romans chapter 6 idea. Uh, but that there is no future bodily resurrection. Uh, it may have also been something akin to what Paul contended with in Thessalonians. Remember how the Thessalonians were convinced that, that, that they were already living in the last days, uh, that um, the, the second coming of the Lord had already come to pass, and they, they believed that, that the, the day of the Lord was already at hand, and Paul says that's not correct, and he had to help them through their understanding. All of these things corrupted the hope of the gospel with the message uh, of error that, that obscured the gospel itself. And so that's Hymenaeus and, and his error, assuming it to be the same man, and that is an assumption. Alexander is even less clear. The only possible implication, again being in 2 Timothy, this time 4, verse 14, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Again, under the presumption that this is the same Alexander, all we know is that he did some particular evil against Paul. So Paul says he has delivered these men unto Satan. 
The likely idea here not being mystical in nature, not that Paul put some sort of apostolic curse on them or anything of the sort. There's no biblical precedent for such a thing. But rather, perhaps Paul, having spent a great deal of time and effort speaking with them, contending with them, trying to help them through their error, came to a point where he realized that they were not seeking truth. They were only seeking to argue that they were men who were unwilling to listen. And so Paul stopped casting his pearls before swine. Paul said, okay, fine, take your error and go. There's nothing more that I'm going to do with you that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's perhaps what is meant there, seems more likely from the context. Now we've learned much today. Several applications I'd like us to take with as we go. Point number one from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Sin committed before salvation may still carry consequences, but incur a unique mercy. I know we parked on this for a little while when we were in the text, but I'm coming back to it because I really want to make this clear. Jesus said in John 8, 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. This came in the midst of a conversation between Jesus and the children of Abraham, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who believed themselves to be free by reason of their, their bloodline, their heritage, ignoring the reality that they still rested under the slavery of sin. And Jesus said to them four verses earlier, he said, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. I don't know all of the emotional battles that you face as a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know who has fully embraced that reality of their righteousness in Christ and who is resting perhaps under some of that guilt or that shame or that sorrow that I described earlier because of the consequences of your ignorant choices before Christ. You lived in the darkness of sin and in that time you did many things of which you are now ashamed and it affected you. Maybe it affected your family, your loved ones. And you look back with regret. But this regret carries onward in you. And you rest under the shame of those choices. And you loathe yourself for who you were. And you wonder why. And you're thus convinced that God can't use you or won't use you. And you see yourself still clothed in the filth of the past. May I just encourage you again. May I say it again. That's a lie. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, last week, we went through that list of sins of which people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And remember then we read verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see yourself this way? You were defined by your sin. You were defined by your ignorance, but that isn't you Anymore. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Christ came into the world specifically to save people like you and me and Paul, all of whom are wretched sinners, but who, if we've accepted Christ, are saved by grace. Or maybe you're here and you haven't been saved by grace. Maybe as you've been hearing these things today, as you've contemplated uh, your own relationship with the Lord, you recognize that you are still under 
the condemnation of that sin, that you have never come to the place where you have fully rested, trusted, or understood the grace of Jesus Christ, where you've never recognized in full, as you do now perhaps, that you are a sinner. And that because you are a sinner, you have been wholly separated from a holy God. That God is holy, that you are sinful, and a holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful people. And because of that sinfulness, that separation from God, if we die in that state of separation, we must go to a place of eternal separation, which the Bible designates as the lake of fire. A place of torment, a place of sorrow, a place of, of, of eternal, perpetual separation from God in conscious torment. And that as a just recompense for our sin. But that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That Jesus Christ came to this earth and we being sinful, He was born without sin and He lived a life without sin. And He being a perfect man who had never once sinned, yet went to the cross and died on the cross. And the Bible says as he was on the cross and there were many, many cruel, terrible things in the flesh that he bore on that day. He was beaten. He was lashed. He was, he was bruised. Uh, he was nailed to that cross where, where people would, would, would suffocate and eventually die. And, and yet the, the reality of that day was not just physical. The Bible says that in that moment, God the Father took your sin and my sin and placed it on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus Christ on the cross bore your sin and my sin in his body. That God took all of his wrath against your sin and my sin and punished Christ for that sin. And then Jesus said, it is finished. And he died. He gave up the ghost. They put him in a grave. And three days later, the Bible says, he rose from the grave in victory over sin, in victory over death, in victory over hell. See, if Jesus had walked this earth saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, promising eternal life, promising to make us free indeed, promising us uh, life and life more abundantly, and then he died and his bones went into that grave and we could go find those bones and we could visit those bones, then Jesus is no good to me. How can he give eternal life to one, me, when he does not even have it himself? How can he raise me to life when he is lying in the tomb? But that he is risen, but that he is not in that tomb, but that he was seen of over 500 at one time, but that it is historically established and biblically established that he is risen, says that if he is alive, he can do everything he promised for me. So that the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you're living in separation from God, if you see the end of that road and if you were to die at this moment, you know that you would stay in that place of separation, that you would go to that place of eternal fire and torment and separation from God. And you don't want that. And you're ready to step off of that path. The Bible says Jesus came to save sinners. 
that if you will place your full faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, recognizing that there's no way you can earn your way to heaven, there's no way you can buy your way to heaven, there's no way you can work your way to heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That if you will cease from trying to get to heaven on your own and you will yield to the reality that Jesus has already paid the price and you will accept that with all of your heart. The Bible says the Spirit of God will come and will indwell you and will break the chains of sin and will cleanse your heart of sin and will make you a new creation in Christ. The end of that road being life eternal. If you've never done that today, would, would you make today the day? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you submit yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you acknowledge before God that you're a sinner, that you know you're a sinner, that you know you cannot get yourself to heaven, but that you believe with all your heart that Jesus already did the work and you accept his payment on your behalf? Ask him to save you from your sins. The Bible says, all who come to me, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to him, he won't cast you out. Say, Pastor, I don't fully understand. I need more information. Would you come and see me after the service today? And we'll talk through it. And we'll make sure that you understand. So we said before, the sins committed in your past may still carry emotional and physical consequences upon you, upon others. But there is a unique mercy that accompanies the moment of salvation when the slate is wiped clean, when we are passed from death to life. And it gives us confidence to know that every man who is in Christ is, by virtue of being born again, having accepted God in Christ, accepted of God in Christ, and thus usable by God. Point number two. Any call to ministry, no matter how small, comes with and requires divine enablement. One of the most common reasons why we don't serve the Lord is feelings of inadequacy. We don't know enough. We aren't articulate enough. We aren't capable enough to do the Lord's work. And once again, I guess I'm kind of uh, I'm focusing on some lies today. That's a lie. It's a lie. And that's not because you're stronger or smarter and better than you think. We are, we're Christians. We're not, we're not fortune cookie creators. The reason why you can be used of God is not because you're stronger than you think or smarter than you think or better than you think. But because, as we have said already, the work is the Lord's and we are just channels through which he works. That song that we sing from time to time, channels only, right? We are a conduit through which God does work in this world. As we've already said, the work is the Lord's. Now, this truth cuts in two directions. The first being, as we just mentioned, that it is an invalid excuse to say or to believe that you cannot do the work of God because you're not naturally gifted at something. God does not need your gifts, though he is certainly willing to use them. What God needs is a willing and a faithful heart. I grew up as a very terrible public speaker. Didn't want to speak. Loathed speaking. Could not formulate words well when I did have to speak. That's okay. God did not need me to be a good speaker to make me a preacher. God needed my heart. And the second reality is that absent the divine enablement of God through His Holy Spirit, you have no capacity unto a spiritual work. 
Where God is not leading, he is not providing, which means anytime we go to do a spiritual work, we need to make sure God is in it. This is the other end of that coin. It's one thing for us to say, I'm not going to do the work because I don't have the capability when God is in it, because if we do the work, God's there. He'll take care of, he'll take care of the capability. But the other problem is when we say, I'm just going to go do something, and we didn't even stop to ask God if he wanted us to do it. Or we didn't even stop to ask his help to get it done. As if we can just power through it in our own strength and make it work because we know enough about this stuff. It's not enough to have passion. We need to have God's power. Let's lay out a few principles biblically. We consider already Paul's testimony of his weakness from 2 Corinthians 12. Consider the principles that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 1. A lot of overlap today between the message and Sunday school. I love it when that happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. God uses the weak things in this world. God uses the poor things of this world. God uses the foolish things of this world because when God uses those things that aren't supposed to work and they work, he gets the glory. Thus, James chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that God has chosen the poor in this world rich in faith. And indeed it is so. One more point for the sake of time. I wanted to go through several more, but we'll just stick to this one more. Point number three. Spiritual shipwreck. Be warned. Spiritual shipwreck is not a statistical outlier. We contend for the truth fervently and passionately because the truth is all that we have. We war a good warfare. We strongly stand upon sound doctrine because we have all seen the results of those who walk contrary to it. Spiritual shipwreck, walking away from the faith, walking away from sound doctrine, falling into error. We've all seen it happen. And it happens when our ideas get imposed on the Bible's ideas. Not always maliciously. There's any number of well-meaning reasons to impose our ideas on biblical ideas. We have practical reasons. We have empathetic reasons. We have convenience reasons. And so we drift into some measure of error and it leads to spiritual shipwreck. Kind of like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. And this is why we wore this warfare. This is why we must have the courage to stand up for what the Word of God actually says. Because at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, we really don't have anything else. If the church of God loses truth, we have nothing else to distinguish us. We are the pillar and the ground of truth. If that goes away, if the truth part goes away, then we might as well just all go home because we have lost the only thing upon which we stand. So how are you doing today? Are you living in the reality of your salvation? Are you serving out of a faithful heart, ready to do the will of the Lord, waiting patiently for His leading and His empowerment unto ministry? Have you been using your lack of capabilities as an excuse to not step out and do what you believe the Lord would have you to do? 
Or have you been going out and trying things for the Lord, but never actually consulting the Lord and seeking His power in them? Are you living in that charge that Paul gave to Timothy? Are you warring that good warfare? Are you standing for truth? Are you holding the faith, keeping it in good conscience, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we may war this good warfare in Jesus Christ? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.